0: Would you pray with me? God, we come to worship you this morning because you are on the throne. And because we know that you are unshakable and unstoppable and unchangeable, we can have faith that through the good times and the bad in our lives, we can trust that you have our lives in your hands. And this morning we come on this Memorial Day weekend when we spend time remembering those who have given the ultimate sacrifice for our freedom, that you too are one of those who has gone all in for us to experience the freedom that you desire for us. We know, God, that you are a good, good father, and because of that, you desire us to be free from the sin and the brokenness of this world and to experience the joy and the freedom that comes from your righteousness. God, through your word this morning, would you speak to us and teach us again how we can be peacemakers who sow a harvest of peace so that we can raise a harvest of righteousness. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. It's good to be together this morning. My name is Kurt, and I'm one of the pastors here. A special welcome to you if you happen to be visiting with us on this holiday weekend. We are glad that you are here. As always, we encourage you, don't rush off too quickly after the service is over. Hang out for a minute or two, have a cup of coffee, give us a chance to greet you and find out a little bit more about what brings you out to church this morning. We are in the middle of our series that we're calling Faith Works, which is a series where we're going through the book of James, which is in the very back of your New Testament. If you want to get your Bibles out now and prepare to, you know, flip all the way through to the back there and find it, we're going to be in uh, the middle of chapter four today. Uh, As we talked about last week, James is uh, exploring the themes of sources and outcomes in the spiritual life. Uh, this idea of faith and works, he's asking the question, what is the source of faith or the source of uh, evil in the world? And what are the outcomes of those sources? What, is the, what does it look like when religion, practically applied in our lives, actually is lived out in a faith community? Uh, another way we might say it is, how does having a biblical worldview impact the way we live our lives and the way we live our relationships with each other, both in the world and as a faith community. And we've been learning that uh, from a biblical perspective, James is telling us that there are two kinds of wisdom. There's a wisdom that comes from heaven that leads to the kind of righteousness that God desires. And there's a a, a quote-unquote wisdom of the world that that leads to disorder and uh, disharmony and seeks to break down the kinds of righteousness that God would wish for us that leads to our wholeness and our health and our ultimate freedom. Experiences of brokenness and disorder in community, he says, start with and flow out of Our own hearts as human beings, our attitudes and our perspectives that we carry within us, our desires that often battle within us, lead to quarrels and fights, we learned last week in verse 1 of chapter 4. They, they come from inside our own hearts. And so James is encouraging us to start with ourselves, to, to take a look at your own heart, to take a look at your own attitudes, and see how those lead to the kinds of positive or negative experiences of life and relationship that you also may be experiencing, whether in your personal life or in our life together as a faith community. This week, he's going to uh, challenge us to pay attention to the fact that if we're not careful, The risk of this kind of quarreling and fighting can lead us further down the path to experience an even greater failure of judgment in our lives. And that's where we pick up the letter of James in chapter 4. We're just going to be looking at two verses today, verses 11 and 12. And he's continuing this section where in the NIV it talks about the challenge of submitting ourselves to God. He says in verse 11, brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Now, this one is a little complicated, so we're going to just focus on these two verses today because there's a lot of language in there that isn't really readily accessible to us in our 21st century culture. There's this idea of law and law-giving and judging, and we've often heard, you know, we're as Christians, we're not supposed to judge other people, but, but what does that mean? How does that actually get lived out? Well, In verse 11, he starts off again with this term of endearment, brothers and sisters. Uh, He's starting as a a role model of the kind of humility that he wants them to be exhibiting with each other. As a leader of the church, he's recognizing that we are all brothers and sisters in the larger spiritual family, and we're, we're all on an equal playing field when it comes to God. We are intended to be the kind of faith works or the, the skunk works of the Christian world that where we're living out this faith together and putting it into practice and, and seeing the kind of righteous relationships emerge that God desires in the reason why he sent his son Jesus to set us free from the sin and the brokenness of our lives. And so he says, brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Now, if you look up slander in the dictionary in English, it simply means to make false and damaging statements about someone, damaging another person's reputation. If you go a little deeper, though, into the Greek language in which the letter was originally written, the NIV translates that Greek word with the word slander, but in in the original Greek, it had a much broader general connotation, which simply meant to speak ill of someone else. Now, it could also be applied in a more specific manner to speak falsely about somebody, But whether statements about other people are true or false, what James has in mind here is that we have to be sensitive and careful about negative and critical speech in our relationships with each other. We might say, talking about each other behind our backs, These were a part of the quarrels and fights, apparently, that was going on in the community that James was writing to because that's how he referred to it earlier in the chapter. And it also reminds us earlier in the the letter where he talks about being aware of the power of the tongue, the power of our words to build up or to tear down. And that the ultimate goal as we look at a biblical perspective that God has for us is that we participate in building up and bringing the healing and the wholeness that God desires, not only for your life, in my life, but for the entire creation. When we do so, we become peacemakers or shalom makers, we said on that Sunday when we talked about that. That's why he goes on to say, anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. Now, this is where it gets a little tricky for us. This behavior, he says, when we speak against a brother or sister, when we, when we speak negatively or, or critically or harshly or even uh, sp- spread false rumors about one another, breaks the law. Well, what law is he talking about? Are we, are we going back to the Old Testament where we have to keep the entire Old Testament law? No, that's not the law that he's talking about, although that is included in it. If you remember, we, we talked about the royal law of love that started in the Old Testament in Leviticus 19.18 that Jesus picked up on in his teaching is that you should love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law in the prophets, Jesus said, can be contained in this law of love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That vertical relationship with God is the starting point. And love your neighbor as yourself. That tells us all the intent of why God gave the Old Testament law to begin with. And this is the law that James is referring to here. James is pointing out if that anyone speaks negatively or falsely against their brother or sister is in fact breaking the law of love. James two eight, he said, if you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. And again, there's this idea of the righteousness that God desires. Scholars suggest that this is, again, a key to us understanding that James is really locked into the teaching of Jesus. The whole Jesus tradition that was emerging in the church goes back to this command that Jesus gave his disciples in John 15, verses 12 through 17. I'm not gonna read the whole thing, but he says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And that's the key verse that we remember every Memorial Day weekend, isn't it? That no greater love exists than to lay down one's life for one's friends. But he goes on to say, You are my friends if you do what I command. And then in verse 17, he says, This is my command love each other. James is helping us to understand that to ignore this command is, in effect, to contradict Jesus himself. See, this kind of speech within Christian community does more than simply breaking the law of love, he says. It treats the law as if it didn't matter, as if it wasn't even in force. Essentially, it judges the law, he says, and finds it not worthy of following. See, our behavior indicates the source of our attitude towards this command that Jesus gave to us as his disciples. You may have heard this quote in the past. God didn't give Moses the 10 suggestions, right, It's not like Jesus, when he was leaving his final instructions with his disciples, walked them through all of this idea of what true love really looks like, and he would ultimately give his life on the cross to demonstrate it for us personally. He didn't say, here's an idea you might want to consider. He said, this is my commandment that you love one another. And it's in our loving one another well, he says, that people will know that we truly are his disciples. Very much like James says, if you truly have faith in Jesus, if you have truly given your life to him as Lord and Savior, then it will demonstrate itself in the way that you live in relationship with one another, in the way that you love one another. And if we fall victim to the temptation, whether it's out of hurt or pride or uh, desire to get our own way, to begin to speak negatively and critically of one another and to talk about each other behind each other's backs, that will do nothing more than to undermine the very law of love that he gave us upon which we're supposed to build our lives in our community. Again, for James, it comes down to our life of worship. We say this over and over again. Worship isn't about coming to church for one hour on Sunday morning. Although this is a part of corporate worship, our worship life includes all that we have and all that we are. It includes our work life and our marriage life and our family life and our parenting and and, and respecting our elders and being a good student. All of the gifts that God has given us, he's invited us to steward them wisely as a part of our worship life. We've learned from James that to live this kind of a life that requires the wisdom of humility and the willingness to fully submit ourselves to God. That's why he goes on in verse 12 to say, there is only one lawgiver and one judge, and that's a capital L lawgiver and a capital J judge, which signifies he's talking about God, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? See, we have to come to God with humility, recognizing we've all blown it, we've all made mistakes, we are all flawed and broken, trying to allow the Holy Spirit of God to put the broken pieces of our lives back together. Therefore, we need to approach one another with grace and patience and humility and learn how to work to build one another up rather than tear one another down. By our behavior and speaking ill against one another, we essentially put ourselves in the place of God, James is saying, as if we had the right and the wisdom and the authority to sit in judgment over others. Now, this idea of judging is a little tricky one, too, because I'd like to suggest that as you go through and you you look at this idea of judging, there's two different aspects to it. One applies in the situation here and the other doesn't. Uh, I'd like to talk about the idea of judgment versus being judgmental, because the Bible in many other places says we are supposed to use wise judgment as Christians. It doesn't mean that we, do, we throw out all judgment in order to, to be a good Christian. What it means is that we don't take a judgmental attitude with each other. Let me explain a little bit what I mean. Judgment, in the definition in the uh, Webster, says it's the ability to make considered decisions or come to sensible conclusions. Well if you think about the teaching of Jesus, he said in Matthew 10:16, "See, I am sending you out like sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves." See, Jesus knew that it would take wise judgment for us to navigate our way through a broken and a dark and an evil world. In in no sense are we to, to throw out our wisdom and our judgment as Christians. We have to use judgment to make wise decisions for our own lives, to discern between good and evil. But in the act of using our judgment, if we allow that to slide into becoming judgmental towards other people around us, then we are not actually using wise judgment, but in fact we have fallen into a failure of judgment and we're missing the point of why Jesus gave his life. When it comes to the life of faith, we've been invited to live out together. We are not supposed to live judgmentally with each other. According to James, when we become judgmental, we're not only arrogating to ourselves what belongs to God alone, but we also invite and pronounce judgment on ourselves because we demonstrate that we're missing the whole point of the law of love, that it's supposed to lead us to build one another up, to speak kindly and encouragingly to each other, to have grace and patience and mercy. This often happens, though, especially when we think of we, when we are in the right or we are in the position to protect something that's valuable or important. And we see this play out in our culture every day, don't we? I mean, we don't have to look very far out there into the world to see how this uh, dynamic works. We see it in our current presidential race. You know, the, 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 the slander that's going out through our tweets and our emails and our social media and the news picks up on it and you have all this drama that's going on between these political candidates. But, but they feel very justified in doing these negative things because the whole goal is to win, right? The end justifies the means. If you win the White House, who cares what you said to get there? Now you're there. It justifies the fact that you can do whatever you want. We see it in our nightly news broadcasts where you have this win-at-all-costs attitude in debates where, where you put each other down and you slander each other right on national television in order to prove your point, and, and who can diss the other person more is, comes out on top in the debate. The ends justify the means. We see it at work in our office politics and people climbing the ladder. We see it in our school systems. We see it in our own marriages and families. And we have the capacity to speak ill-considered words and even slanderous words about each other, even within the church too. I can't tell you how many horror stories I've heard about churches who get locked into these battles where the lies and the rumors and the slander that goes on behind the scenes just tears people and families apart. It's unfortunate but true that the contemporary church is no less immune to this virus of slander and ill talk and criticism than the church to which James wrote. So what do we do about it? How do we we address this issue, if it is even an issue that we need to deal with? Well, again, I'd like to suggest that James is recommending we start with ourselves first. Don't start thinking about, oh, yeah, he's talking about Joe and oh, well, I, Mary, she, she needs to hear this message. What about you and me? How often does our own speech, in the quietness of private conversations with friends, uh, at Starbucks, in the cooler room, at, the, at work, drift towards critical, negative talk about other people, whether it's our church leaders or our neighbors or our coworkers? If we are really honest, we really struggle with this, don't we? So James suggests the three things that we can do. The end doesn't justify the means. Sometimes we're so sure that we're standing up for what's right or good or we feel hurt or wounded that, that we feel justified in lashing out or talking about somebody else because we feel like they've done us wrong. But the end doesn't justify the means. Often we can leave a sea of damage in our wake. And James is telling us that the life of faith or in the life of faith, we have to understand that the how is just as important as the why. You get that? The how is just as important as the why. We can't allow ourselves in our, con- our certainty of our own faith to allow ourselves to think that it doesn't matter how we relate to each other or talk about each other if we're working for what we even think is a positive goal, because the how we do it is just as important as the why. That's the source and the outcome. If we're not paying attention to how we are living out our life and how we are using our words to either build up or tear down, we can unwittingly be doing more damage even when we think we're trying to do good. And that leads to number two, is in order to have some clarity in all that, we need to allow the Bible to be our guide. That's the value of knowing and being in Scripture, because as you look at the whole of Scripture and you allow Scripture to give us a more biblical worldview, We begin to see what David Nystrom said in his commentary, that there's something about faith that tends toward certainty, but certainty can be dangerous if it makes us blind to the truth. He says, you see this worked out in the life and the ministry of Jesus, where he spent time and effort trying to open the eyes of the religious leaders of his day, but to no avail because they were so certain that they knew what God wanted and they knew what scripture meant that they missed the Messiah when he came. What ensures the honesty and integrity of our faith and practice, he says, is in part a healthy biblical self-critique. Going to Scripture, but looking at Scripture as a critique to our life first. Again, James is reminding us of having this biblical worldview helps us to learn how to apply God's wisdom in everyday practical situations in our lives. Biblically, we're reminded, again, that our goal is to be a part of God's peacemaking, His healing, His wholeness, and His shalom. We are to be His peacemakers, James told us. And if we're not using our words to build each other up, but we're allowing them to tear each other down, even in quiet, subtle, and secret ways, then we're not participating in the shalom of God in this world. Finally, the, then the starting point means that we need to start with ourselves and commit to a new level of personal integrity, paying attention to the words that are coming out of our mouth. See, integrity means that we would be willing to say publicly whatever we're saying in private. If we have an issue with someone, we go directly to them, and we do our best to work it out with them. That was also part of Jesus' teaching in Matthew 18, right? If you, if you have a problem with a brother or sister, you have an issue, go talk to them about it. Don't go to a third party and talk to them about it. Go directly to them. Give them an opportunity to hear your concerns, to hear your heart, and what you can do is you can win your brother or sister, And if that doesn't work out, then then seek more help. But but at least start with a personal integrity that if you have a thought or an idea or a feeling, bring it up and go directly to them. Because if we don't, what happens is we unwittingly become a part of the disorder and the destruction of community. It leads to disharmony. What about you this morning? Are there areas in your life where maybe you've allowed the critical nature to creep into your speech. Maybe it's with your spouse in your conversations with each other over who's going to do the dishes or who's going to pay the bills or where we put the new sofa in the new house that we're moving into. <laughs> that would never happen at our house. <laughs> See, God is inviting us to understand that we have a new identity in Christ, that it doesn't matter where you've been, it doesn't matter what you've done, it doesn't matter the mistakes you've made before now, but in Christ, we recognize, as we've sung over and over again through this series, we have a good, good father who wants the best for us. And we have a new identity in Christ. We, we come to understand that we have the opportunity to be shalom makers, to be peacemakers, to bring God's healing and wholeness into other people's lives. And, and the hardest part about that is to do it right at home, where it starts in those who are living closest to us. It, it, it has to, it, the hardest part about doing it right here at church, when we have to to struggle to give up our own wants and preferences and needs to, to, to care for the needs of the other first. Too often we make church about uh, 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 being successful in the program and we miss the people in the process. And James is inviting us to say, Focus on the people, not the process. Because if you focus on the people, you win the process as well. And in this season of life, we have a challenge as a church moving ahead of whether we are going to allow the Spirit of God and the presence of Christ to be our Lord and our Savior. Are we going to be disciples of Jesus or are we going to be disciples of some other master? whether it be our denomination or the name of our church or uh, the pastor who's preaching on the platform this Sunday, we can become so at risk of falling away from Jesus because we think that there's something else that we need more than him. But Jesus simply said, my command is this, love each other and everyone will know that you are my disciples. Brothers and sisters, may we learn to love one another well. Let's pray.